Thanks for listening to the Best of Coast to Coast podcast. And if you want to hear more than just this highlight from the show, become a Coast Insider and you can listen to the complete program, plus recent episodes about out-of-body experiences, the scientific search for extraterrestrial life, and biblical prophecies, which may have foretold our current state of global turmoil. So head on over to coasttocoastam.com and sign up for Coast Insider to catch up on what you may have missed from coast to coast. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you, Dr. Herbert London, president of the London Center for Policy Research and senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. As a former president of the Hudson Institute, Dr. London is a professor emeritus and the former John M. Olin Professor of Humanities at New York University responsible for creating the Gallatin School of Individualized Studies back in 72, was the dean there until 92. Dr. London is a noted social critic whose work has appeared in every major newspaper and journal in the country. We're going to be talking about our relationship with China and Russia and what that all means to us. Dr. London, Herb, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure to hear your voice. And, uh, gosh, you were on with me almost a year ago, I remember, right? That's correct. Well, I'm glad you're back, and we got to get you back more often because I have a feeling, Herb, that these world events are going to need that, necessitate that. Well, there is no question that we are living in a world in disarray and that a lot of the conditions that we are facing today are brought about in large part by the withdrawal and incremental withdrawal of the a foreign policy from the Obama administration. And so we are living in a world very different from the world in the past, in part because the Trump administration has inherited some very awkward and ticklish situations. And with these situations, I mean, what's happening now? I mean, I'm, I'm beginning to feel tension between Russia, China, us. It seems like there's an alliance between China and Russia. They're getting closer and closer. That's not a good thing. What's happening, Herb, under the well, table that a lot of Americans just There are just rivalries in the world. There are always rivalries. The question is, competition doesn't necessarily lead to conflict. What we've got to do is to manage the competition without bringing ourselves to the brink of war. In the case of China, it's very important to understand the Chinese game plan. And let me put it in some context. Sure. The Chinese recognize the fact that they are the middle kingdom in Asia, or at least they think they are. All nations, the 36 36 nations that surround China, are regarded as the periphery. China sees itself as the center. The Chinese are attempting to create their version of a contemporary Silk Road, the one band, one belt, one road concept, which would give them commercial advantages in the future. As a consequence, the Chinese do not want war. What they want is to maintain the position they're in and to see it grow. If you look at the GDP of China today, it's about $12 trillion. The GDP of the United States is about $18 trillion. But, you know, you've got to give China credit for coming along as fast as they have. Oh, it's remarkable. It it's really is. Remarkable. Uh, I mean, I do give them credit. But I, I want to make a point here between the two, two nations. The United States clearly has an advantage. It's growing more rapidly uh, because you can't believe the Chinese statistics. But the one thing that is very important to note 
is the Chinese rely on STEM. That is science, technology, and we rely very heavily on Facebook and a lot of nonsense. Our economic growth is related to communications and exchanges. Their economic growth is related to engineering and hard science. That's right. That gives them a distinct advantage. They produce 36 engineers for every engineer we create in the United States. My God. So you're looking at the advantages the Chinese recognize all of this. Now, do they send a lot of their students to the United States for education? Without any question. The best students in China will go to MIT, Caltech, or our finest institutions. Do they stay or do they go back they to China? They do not. They all are obliged to go back to China. And the advantages are extraordinary because they are paid very handsomely when they return to China. So you think about all the Chinese, what the Chinese have in the future. Yes, they're competitors. Yes, they're rivals. But they are not likely to be engaged in war against the, against the United States. I had heard that China is run by about 75 people. Is that true? That is true. And now with Xi, of course, being president for forever, life, yeah. there is no question. It's the circle around Xi that makes a difference in Chinese decision-making. Now, even and though her... I've indicated to you before, the game plan is out there for us. It's not as if the Chinese are concealing anything. The game plan is clear. One belt, one road around the world. Well, and, the, and what they're doing is, is you know, they're, they're strengthening their navy. They're strengthening their, their cities. They're strengthening um, relationships with other countries. I mean, they're, what, whatever they're doing, they're doing remarkably well. In many areas, that is true. It's also true that the Chinese promise more than they deliver. This is true all through Africa, where there's a good deal of suspicion about the Chinese today. In addition, if you look at China itself, yes, the cities are remarkable. They glow with new buildings and with bright lights. But if you look behind those buildings, you will see poverty of a kind that is as egregious as any in the world. Really? Okay. And then if you look at the corruption in China, corruption runs the Chinese economy. If you are a civil servant earning the equivalent in dollars of $10,000 and you're working on a project of $50 million and there's a payoff there of a couple of million dollars, you are going to be very tempted to engage in that kind of, uh, that kind of corrupt activity, that kind of bribery. And the Chinese live with that. And so there are all kinds of problems within China. It's not as if this is a smooth, easygoing economy. If you were able, Herb, to poll the Chinese, the average Chinese, and, and that they wouldn't have to worry about any ramifications if the polling results became public, what would most of them say about their standard of living and, and, and whether they love living in China or not? Look, it depends on where they sit, as is always the case in polling. 300 million Chinese have been taken from poverty and introduced to the middle class. It's a remarkable achievement. This is out of a population of 1.3 billion people. 
But keep in mind that, that if I'm talking about 300 million, I'm still left with a billion people who are living in rank poverty. And they're not too happy, are they? Well, not only are they not too happy, but in many instances, they're supported by inefficient government operations. Industries that make no sense at all. The Chinese keep them going because they're fearful that if these people are without jobs, without employment, there'll be riots across the country. Well, I was going to say, at what point does this billion surplus of people, the ones who aren't happy, start saying enough is enough? Well, it's very difficult to say. I mean, the one thing that the Chinese government has done very effectively, it continues to promise that the future will be better than the present. And for many Chinese, there is the opportunity to enter the ranks of the middle class, as I pointed out. And many Chinese do leave the rural areas that are very poor and enter the cities where, in fact, they tend to live a better life. A lot of that is going on. So it's a dynamic process. You can't say that any, at any given moment I can tell you exactly how people will respond because the world is changing and the Chinese government is changing. Well, with Dr. Herb London, as we talk about China, we'll talk about Russia, too, as well. And in this particular case, with the tariffs that we have imposed, China has done it on us now, and I think it's going to get even bigger and bigger. Is that smart? Is that good? What, what do you think? I don't think it's smart. I don't think it's good. And I don't think it's true. The Chinese undoubtedly can reciprocate to the kind of tariffs that have been imposed on them. But if you listen very carefully to what Larry Kudlow has been saying very recently, this is the opening gambit in the negotiation. If, in fact, what we are talking about here is $60 billion, which is not an extraordinary sum, and that is the unfavorable balance of trade at the moment, well, reduced that to $30 billion through negotiations, and it's all over. I think that there's been an awful lot of exaggerated rhetoric regarding these tariffs. There is not going to be a tariff war. We're not going to fight a tariff war. There are too many nations, particularly the Chinese, that have a stake in making sure that doesn't happen. And we have a stake in making sure that doesn't happen as well. So what Donald Trump, what President Trump was doing, was sending a message. We are no longer going to be patsies in these negotiations. We want it perfectly clear that tariffs are not acceptable, but at the same time, they are symbolic, and we will impose them if necessary. It's not going to happen in any manner, shape, or form that will change the character of the markets or present trade arrangements. Larry, uh, Alan, uh, Alan Kudlow, Lawrence Alan Kudlow is a television personality, economic commentator, and he also heads up the president's National Economic Council. Uh, so would you say that the move by the president so far is a good one, smart one? I would say, uh, in my judgment, it was not smart. It was not smart, okay. And I would say as well that the rhetoric was overblown. And I would say as well that members of the press kind of bought this entire uh, opening gambit without any understanding of the nuance involved and the symbolism associated with it. If you read the Democratic press, which by and large is the fourth estate, 
you would come to the conclusion that Trump has acted irresponsibly. What I'm saying to you is there's, there's been so much backsliding on this matter that when it started as a blanket tariff, you now have Mexico that's not included, Canada that's not included, Europe that's not included. In fact, the only nation to which tariffs would be applied is China. And as I just indicated, that will be open to negotiation. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.